You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Today, Neil, you're going to introduce us to the ideas in the bias variance dilemma. I've never heard of this. Take, tell me what it is. It's a fundamental thing that um, I mentioned last week in the context of overfitting. So the bias variance dilemma is uh, originally from, I think, a 92 paper. That was a classic year. I was talking about 92 papers in uh, a couple of weeks back. It's a um, good vintage. A good vintage. A good vintage. Learning. 92. And, and actually, maybe the ideas are elsewhere as well. Um, but the bias variance dilemma, um, or the, the nicest decomposition, is looking at quadratic error. So quadratic error is often what we use to minimize, certainly in regression. Some people even use it in classification. Um, so in terms of our objective function. Just stepping away a little bit, one thing I, I kind of feel that for most machine learning, there's two fundamental functions. There's what I tend to call the prediction function and what I tend to call the objective function. Now, people might use other names for those things, but the prediction function is what you use uh, to sort of take your data input and, and it's the function you run to get your output. So like a neural network, that process, as we discussed uh, a couple of weeks back, is sometimes called inferencing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, but, but I call it prediction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, prediction. Um, and then the um, objective function, sometimes called the error function or the cost mm -hmm. function, is a function of that objective, of the prediction function, excuse me, and, and your actual data. And it sort of tries to sort of measure the dissimilarity between your um, data and uh, your predictions. Um, now, in the quadratic case, it turned out that there's a very elegant decomposition uh, of the this error function. When you try and look at it, and you people in the frequentist world are often looking at looking at the performance across all potential future data that you might want to test on, which is a very sensible thing to look at. So, if you look at this uh, this object and you say, "Well, how could this decompose?" What's really interesting is it decomposes into well, three parts. Um, it, it decomposes into what is sometimes called the irreducible error, uh, which is the noise. Mm. So the bit that you didn't really want. The other parts that are contextually important here are the bias and the variance. So there's these three additive terms. It's the bias squared plus the mm -hmm. variance plus mm -hmm. the irreducible error. Mm. And when you look at the generalization error, you can estimate uh, for any given trained model what parts of the generalization error are contributed from these different parts. So you, don't, you can't estimate it for all future test data because, again, no one gives you infinite data. But for the test data you have, what you might try and do is estimate the sort of how much error you have due to bias and how much error you might have due to variance. These two different errors are interesting in terms of their characteristics. Now, bias error is error due to your um, model, your prediction function, not being complex enough to get its head around the data. It doesn't have a head, but in that sense, you know, um, it, it, it's like, it's like, oh, bias error would be significant for a linear model. So bias error, I think, is reasonably easy to understand conceptually, and maybe variance error is slightly more complex to understand. It's error that comes from slight variations in the training data leading to very different um, fits. Uh -huh. Now, this goes back to, uh, you see where we're coming from, overfitting yes. from last week. So I kind of feel overfitting. What people mean when they say overfitting is they mean variance error. Ah, uh, okay. Now, I have to be careful mm -hmm. of my wording here because mm -hmm. it might be that you have the correct model. Mm -hmm. It might be that 
like like you might this is the sort of thing you might do Catherine I know you you might give me data sampled from a radial basis functional network with 27 I, basis functions I would totally do that yeah mm -hmm. you would totally do that but you might yeah. only give me 15 points right and then yeah. I might come along and try mm -hmm. and you you told me it was 27 basis functions I did and I try and fit this uh, model uh, with a quadratic error because you mm -hmm. added Gaussian noise and then what I might find is I get overfit, I get high variance error, even though I knew the right model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not going to get bias error because I've got the right model. Right, but you're but getting I variance will get variance error. error. And variance got error it. is uh, coming from the fact that I don't see enough data mm -hmm. to actually determine those parameters well. Mm -hmm. And so that would be an overfit, even though I have the right model. This is a, a sort of fascinating challenge um, that, you know, you, you could have the right model and you still... Uh, have high variance so i think that decomposition is super important and also because also if you understand your error why your error is coming from you also can take the right corrective action so a very well-known uh, correction action that you can take with any set of models is known as bagging so bagging means bootstrap aggregating and, and in that what you do is you take the same model this is a leo Brineman thing where you um take bootstrap samples of your data so bootstrap samples are you you sample with replacement mm -hmm. so like you put all the data points in in the bucket uh and then you you pull seven mm -hmm. data points out but you do it in, not like the lottery right. you put the or, or the, the draw for the the football right. whether it's american or <laughs> real football um you don't you, you don't put the you put the ball back mm -hmm. in so you can get the same data point it's twice like that's called a bootstrap sample. got it and, and they're super cool. They're, they're useful for all sorts of things. And you fit the models to these different bootstrap samples, and then you sort of average the results. Mm. And that deals with variance. So what you get is, you see, what happens then is my 27 basis function RBF network. Mm -hmm. Every time I do this, I'll get a slightly different data set. And I'll get a slightly different fit. And then I average over them. And Brian was a fantastic. That's called an ensemble method. He was a fantastic advocate for these things. So is it functionally making the data you have available larger it's weird uh, there's entire books written about this simple method that mm. it's one of the most um, cited books in all of statistics um, on the bootstrap sample it's weird and it's called that uh, it's called bootstrap because the idea is you pull yourself up by your bootstraps like ah, very nice. That's yeah good. yeah I so like you're that. sort of using the same data and resampling it and mm -hmm. then you can get you don't just get the mean effect you can look at you get uh, bootstrap variance as well mm. so you can look at ver uh, variance around the mean now the challenge with that is that you're typically to do that you end up doing a lot more fitting yeah so for small data sets this is fine but if you, i mean what kind of it goes back a little bit to the dropout thing we talked about uh, mm -hmm. two weeks ago there you're sort of somehow you're fitting multiple models. They're looking at different parts of the data set in a, in a much more complex way that, that I, I, I don't fully understand. Um, but mm -hmm. here, this is a way that is easier to understand. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing in um, uh, Dropout is actually reducing your computation over the original model. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas this, every time you do that fit, you're going to do the same amount of work. Right. So it's practical uh, on, on, in for smaller data sets, but can mm -hmm. become challenging for larger. Or, I mean, another issue with it, um, and Rich Caruana was, was someone who worked on this. He, he showed that, I mean, even without bagging, he did a lot of work on ensembles, I think, uh, in the early noughties. And he showed that these ensembles just perform really well. Um, and I think mainly because they're reducing variance error. I can't uh, guarantee that's always the case because there's some mm. interesting uh, examples from uh, 
boosting where you reduce bias error. Um, but the, mainly because you reduce variance error. Um, but the problem is the end classifier, which is a mix of like 100 different models, is just too, too slow to run. So, so he did some really interesting work, which he's also done for deep learning, where you then you go back and you refit a neural network to that. And yeah, you get this really slow thing, and then you replace right. it with a one model, but you train that in a clever way to make it reflect the answer. And people have revisited that work recently for the deep learning field as well. Interesting. So I think bias variance, I mean, thinking about your challenges. Bias error, I mean, another thing about it, it's very consistent. Mm. So you'll see people talking a lot about bias error as uh, it comes up in, the, in psychology. We seem to, as humans, have a cognitive bias to overcomplicate our explanation. Mm -hmm. So given the same amount of information, so, so given the same question, uh, from uh, an interesting listener on talking machines, any two machine learning experts will give widely varying answers uh, about totally different things because they just overcomplicate it. Yeah. Um, now, that's a characteristic of variance error, given a sort of small amount of information, your models predict different things. Mm -hmm. and, and, and people say, oh, no, wouldn't it be better if humans were consistent? Like, wouldn't it be better if all <laughs> judges made the same decision given the same case, right? <laughs> Yes, that would be amazing. So consistency, this is a fascinating thing. People confuse consistency with truth in that case because mm -hmm. if it were the case that every judge gave the same decision, then actually we would right. know that they were committing bias error. So they right. were oversimplifying because the bias variance dilemma tells us that you can't really have one or the other. You'll never get it bang on. Because right. even if you have the right, even if the judge knows people so well that, he, that they understand everything that happens, Mm -hmm. when they hear the data, they'll overfit in some degree or another. And any given judge right. will do it in a different way and draw to a different conclusion. They'll tend to. So then they can try and oversimplify, but then if they oversimplify, then they will miss some of the nuances of the case. So right. this isn't just important for machine learning, Catherine. This is about life. This is about humans, Neil. This is about life, human people, those ones. Um, now, I find that really important and fundamental. Because what you'll tend to see now that people are using algorithms in judgment, they'll start right. saying, oh, look at this algorithm. It's making a consistent decision. Therefore, it's right. better. But actually, right. it could be consistently wrong. Right, right. And, exactly. and, but we have, because truth is intractable, it's very hard to understand the actual truth of a very complex set of circumstances. People replace it with consistency. So humans seem to bias, to my mind, towards some sort of variance um, in terms of their own prediction and decision making. And, you know, but we know actually that you can aggregate samples. Bootstrap aggregating tells us that you can resolve with that. So one way of dealing with that is committees, for example, mm -hmm, juries. Mm -hmm. If you have the right, yeah. as long as one person, you know, crowdsourcing, all this sort of thing can help. The problem with bias error is nothing helps to mm. my mind. I mean, actually, that's not quite true. Boosting, you can fit simple models and combine them in clever ways, but it's, it's a special fit with a weighted of samples, like we were talking mm -hmm. about for unbalanced data. Mm -hmm. the, the bias variance dilemma, I think it's helpful in your own decision-making. Like, you will get told it's true, for example, that um, a good technique of making um, decision-making around appointments more consistent, and you'll see this in Kahneman. If you read uh, you know, Kahneman's learning, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, He'll mm -hmm. talk about how you reduce humans' tendency to overcomplicate by having them score, say, an interview candidate under like five different criteria and then average their scores. Uh -huh. And then he says, well, this, you, you tend to get uh, more consistent decision making. But, you know, 
I think Kahneman's amazing, but he doesn't, you know, highlight the fact that, that consistency isn't necessarily true. Right. It's a good, perhaps it's a good characteristic in that case. But, um, you know, I, I think it's sometimes something we forget that when this maps into human decision making, humans seem to exhibit more variance naturally. Um, and the way of dealing with that is probably just to sort of get them to get together an average in some sense. But you have yeah, to be careful to get as many viewpoints that. as possible. Like put 12 people in a jury, not one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, right. 12 angry variances. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have more about the bias variance dilemma and how you can see it in your life and also in your work on our website thetalkingmachines.com this week's listener question on talking machines is about neural networks can you please talk about ways to avoid neural networks from being fooled imperceptible changes causing misclassification and so on so, so Neil, how do we how do we get out in front of these imperceptible changes? Well, I think that this is yeah. These are these adversarial examples. Hmm. So let's first of all sort of have a little think about what's going on. Um, so what people have shown is that uh, you can take one of these amazing deep neural networks and mm -hmm. uh, you can take an image that is presented to its input. Mm -hmm. Now. Now, I think you have to have access to the neural network here, but uh, mm. I'm not 100% sure to this to do this efficiently. But you can basically change the input um, by very small amounts that are imperceptible to humans. Uh, you can do that by moving individual pixels or by moving many pixels, and you can force the neural network to very confidently classify the image as something it's very obviously not to a human. Got it. Mm -hmm. um, certain examples capture the public's imagination, like when they made neural networks have dreams and stuff like that as well. Of course, um, swirly dogs are always great PR. One. Yeah, like making them hallucinate eyes everywhere in images. And this definitely mm -hmm. one has. Now, and I think it's interesting on a few different levels um, because it, it's reflective of what I think is a very important movement, the sort of uh, bringing uh, security and cryptography type thinking mm -hmm. closer mm -hmm. to neural networks. Because it, it's a sort of example of where you could uh, have a safety error in practice. I'm not quite sure. I can't envisage exactly like how someone would use this. But that's one of the things about security is you can't necessarily envisage how they'd use it. Until you actually need it. Until you actually need it. But it's worrying nevertheless, you know, in terms of like, well, uh, you know, this thing that was doing so well, and then I suddenly moved off the main slightly, and mm -hmm. then it did badly. Now, um, this is mostly opinion. It doesn't uh, stop me offering it. I'm, I'm not an expert in this. We've been looking at it a bit with Gaussian processes, actually, and I think that they're much more robust to it. And I th I'll, I'll explain why. Mm -hmm. um, what goes on, the reason you can get away with this is, I, th I believe, because you're moving... Um, the image in uh, a very, very high dimensional space. So uh, you sort of say you've got a picture of a bus and then you move the pixels a little bit and the neural network says ostrich. Um, it doesn't look anything like an ostrich, but what's mm -hmm. happened is you've moved the input image into a mm -hmm. bit of the input space. So, I mean, these spaces, they are so enormous. If you think about like, uh, I mean, the dimensionality uh, so, so okay, here's, here's one of the ways I have about thinking about spaces that try and gets me to realize how freaky spaces are 
I mean, hyper spaces. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it used to sort of slightly disturb me that my intuition was that when people would talk about a Gaussian distribution, they'd say, well, of course, in a Gaussian distribution in a high dimensional space, none of the probability, no samples will ever be near the mean. And I used mm. to think this was very odd. I have no intuition about this. Because I sort of see in a two-dimensional Gaussian, and if I sample from it, I see that uh, things appear near the mean. Mm -hmm. um, but the interesting property of the Gaussian is we know that as we increase dimensionality, um, that uh, things can stay Gaussian. So if I have a thousand-dimensional Gaussian, and if I just look at two dimensions of that, I will just see a normal Gaussian. So that's mm. a marginalization property of a Gaussian. So when I'm looking at a two-dimensional Gaussian, this thought has occurred to me that the, the points that are near the mean, if I believe, I look at this, conceptually, this could be a thousand-dimensional Gaussian, but let's just assume it was a three-dimensional Gaussian. Mm -hmm. So it, it's sort of a bit like looking through a tree. You know, how much uh, of a tree, when a tree is sitting in three-dimensional space, is not taking up a large percentage of that space, but when I look at it from the side, it does tend to shade out my light. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it's covering a lot yep. of the space same with the gaussian here now those mm -hmm. points that look like near the middle if i sort of think oh this is a three-dimensional gaussian i know in fact those data points were spread out a bit mm -hmm. so they're distributed as a gaussian in the plane that i'm observing in i saw oh okay so some of those points that look like they're near the mean aren't actually near the mean so that's if it was from a three-dimensional gaussian but conceptually this could always be from a four or a five or a six or a seven or you know up to a thousand dimensional gaussian mm -hmm. so if i think about a thousand dimensional gaussian then that means that none of those points that i see at the center are near the mean because i can do this a thousand times or i can do it a million times i can do it however many dimensions i like and then when we think about these spaces, so that's my way of saying to myself, that's why you don't understand high dimensional spaces, Neil, because <laughs> your intuitions about what's going on are just wrong, right? <laughs> so, right, but like, how could they be right, right? They're like, it's... It's, it's not within a... You can't. Well, you, you can't. know who was good at this? There's a mm. guy called Charles Howard Hinton who wrote about mm. four dimensional spaces. And Is he any wrote... Any relation? Pardon? Charles Howard Hinton, is he any re relation to uh, the fabulous indeed. Jeff Hinton? So Charles Howard Hinton married George Bull's daughter. And uh, their child is, I think, uh, Jeff's grandfather. But if you go back wow. back to Charles Howard Hinton, who he was super good. He wrote uh, early science fiction oh, wow. material on what it would mean to live in the fourth dimension. And I think, I, I'm not sure, and I've not asked Jeff this, but if you read, um, uh, it's quite possible that H.G. Wells' Time Traveler was based on Charles Chow Hinton. It's quite possible because they coexisted. And the, the Time Traveler at the beginning is always talking about the fourth dimension. H.G. Wells was an early science fiction writer. And Charles Howard right. Hinton, they, he didn't call them science fictions. He called them scientific fantasies or something. Mm -hmm. He wrote about the idea of four dimension. So I'm kind of convinced. I, I'm convinced. I, don't give me data that contradicts this. Because I'm so convinced. This is the dimension that, that I want to live in. If you so go back, read H.G. Wells' Time mm -hmm. Traveler, and just imagine Jeff as the time traveler. Oh, that's The book great. works. The no book problem. works totally, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, distracted. Charles Howard Hinton could think in high dimensions, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think Jeff can as well. I, I think that's a family trait. Mm -hmm. But most of us can't reason very well in these high dimensional spaces, so you have to have these little tools for doing it. Right. What were we talking about? <laughs>
We were talking. We were talking about how talking machines. We were talking about <laughs> neural networks and adversarial examples. Yes. So what yes. can happen, right, is that you can move in these very high-dimensional spaces. You can make like a one-dimensional move, which is what I think they're typically doing, mm -hmm. in a direction which doesn't seem to change the image much to us perceptually, but changes right. the whole everything for the neural network so right. and, and it's because you move it into a space where it's never seen data it's had no experience of data and it never is like because actually you're probably adding unnatural noise to the uh, image mm. in some way mm -hmm. now our eyes somehow we're very robust to this but the neural network isn't and mm -hmm. i certainly can't give you all the answers as to why that happens but i can give you some of my thoughts on it and, and one thought is that because the neural network doesn't um uh, so I would be interested in this, actually, probably someone's already answered this question. So listeners write in if you know a paper on this. So here would be a good paper. What happens in the case? Uh, can you make uh, dropout networks robust to adversarial examples? Mm. So one would expect, you see, that um, maybe dropout uh, nets, because they're trained in this interesting way where they're, they're trying to be consistent across different subparts of the net. Um, would have a better sense for when you were in regions of the data space which were nothing like they'd ever seen before. And, and this is what you, you sort of need. You need a sort of a mechanism in the neural network which provides you with some sort of alarm that, well, this thing is nothing like I've ever seen before, so be mm. a bit careful. Now, the typical way we deal with that in the um, when we're probabilistic modeling is we use uncertainty. So if uh, you end up having a family of solutions a family of solutions that uh, for any point. So any input gives you a family of outputs. Um, and what you would tend, what you hope you would find is as you move away from the training data, then then the model says, well, I'm uncertain. I've not seen anything here. So the family of outputs I had uh, is they're all inconsistent with each other. Hmm. And you might get that for dropout. So I don't know, but I would speculate that in dropout, you might get that the family of dropout solutions, if you do the dropout sampling over mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. Here's a paper, Catherine. Let's write it up. Sounds um, good. TensorFlow. It'll take 10 minutes. Perfect. Um, perfect. Someone Turn will have done Turn it, it on, already, Neil. But let's do it. It's on Archev already. Um, <laughs> let's delay, we, delay this as episode. We, as we speak it into reality, it, it shows up on Archive. <laughs> yeah. So I suspect what you'll find, what I hope what would be fine, would be interesting to find that um, when you do dropout sampling in the way that sort of Yaren Gall describes it at prediction time, mm -hmm. that you would find that um, uh, for these new adversarial samples, you might get inconsistency, you might get uncertainty about what the result is. Mm. Because what they're getting at the moment is they're getting very strong certainty. I, I think that's exploiting the high dimensional input space of the net. And I think this is consistent. I saw Ian Goodfellow talk a little about this, great expert mm. on this area. Um, uh, and, and I think he was saying similar. So I think the intuition uh, is, is shared by a number of people. But I'm not quite sure. I think for the interesting question is whether for Gaussian processes we can prove this type of thing. And that's one mm. of the things we've been looking at. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the jury's out on that. And things get worse. So this is only just the start. I mean, imagine these um, methods deployed in the real world, adversarial examples, are not going to be generated by moving pixels around. They're going to, they're right. generated by people outwitting the algorithm. I mean, right. I mean, Google saw this with PageRank. It started as a relatively simple algorithm. People try to game it, and then you mm -hmm. have to put things into game. And then as soon as you deploy algorithmically in a real environment, you know, it gets very complex. So proving things about performance can be very difficult. But yeah, great yeah. question. Long answer. Frankly, I don't know, but there were some ideas. 
If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. And if anybody writes those papers or finds them, be sure to let us know. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Jeff Dean. He's a senior fellow in the research group at Google where he leads the Google Brain Team. And we asked Jeff the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? So I am currently at Google where I've been for the last uh, 17 years, I guess. Um, I had a rather itinerant childhood, so I lived in lots of places, went to 11 schools in 12 years, you know, Hawaii, Boston, Uganda, Boston, Arkansas, Hawaii, Minnesota, Somalia, Minnesota, Atlanta, uh, Geneva, Seattle, and now here. And I haven't moved from the Bay Area for the last, you know, 20-ish years. Settling uh, in. Settled in, <laughs> uh, which is good. My kids are not getting the same itinerant experience that I got. Great. Um, and... Growing up, I got interested in computers because my dad is a medical doctor, but he got uh, sort of interested in how computing could be used in public health problems. Mm -hmm. And so when he saw an ad in the back of a magazine for the first, like, IMSI 8080 kit computer that you could solder together in your house, I was nine at the time, I guess. And so I kind of, like, watched him solder and, like, tried to help him solder and eventually ended up starting to program on my own, uh, mostly games at ages you know 11 and 12 or whatever it was, nice. you could type in games from this book i bought of game source code and then start modifying the games and very cool um and then i sort of just became interested in how computers could be used to solve real problems i like the fact that you can describe solutions you can like try things and very quickly get feedback about what works and what doesn't and extend and modify software it's a it's a cool thing uh, and then so I went and studied uh, computer science and economics at the University of Minnesota as an undergrad. Um, that was great. Um, got interested in uh, actually I had to do a senior thesis on to graduate with honors. And so I did a thesis on parallel training of neural networks. Wow, ironically. Nice. <laughs> they were all in vogue in right, their first, right. first, the first, uh, wave, the of first wave of neural nets. And <laughs> you still didn't have enough computation then. And, well, you, you still don't, but, <laughs> right, right. but you really didn't back then. Right. And so uh, using parallel computing back then was a good way to get more computation applied to the problem. So I, like, came up with some funny algorithm to, like, flow gradients around this weird 64-node hypercube machine. Awesome. Um, and it kind of filed, a, you know, at that time, neural nets were interesting and could solve kind of smallish problems in interesting ways. Yeah. But they couldn't really be made to work on real problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We just lacked the computational resources, as mm -hmm. it turns out. <clears throat> um, and so I kind of filed that away in my head, and then I went off, uh, worked for the World Health Organization for a year, which was kind of my summer job in college, also doing software for um, the HIV epidemic, doing modeling and wow. forecasting for that. Very and then cool. I ended up going to grad school. Uh, I was going to work for the UN just for a year as like a little break between school <laughs> And Taking time off to work for the U.N. Time off to work for the U.N. Super relaxing. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> went to University of Washington for grad school in computer science and intended to study parallel computing from my uh, sort of neural net experience as a couple of years earlier, but ended up getting diverted into doing compiler optimizations for weird languages, mm. which was fun. Thanks. Uh, and then uh, came to Palo Alto and worked for Digital Equipment Research Labs for almost three years, doing all kinds of things. One of the things I liked about the lab was that there were lots of people doing lots of different things. Cool. So I did some you know, uh, 
operating system level profiling. I did some work on computer architecture, some work on information retrieval, and sort of meandered my way to Google through the information retrieval work. Nice. And you're and you head up Brain here, which <coughs> is you know doing all sorts of amazing stuff all the time. But but what are you excited about right now that you're working on? Yeah, so I think you know the whole field of machine learning is really exciting, and I think there's there's lots of uh, pretty interesting work going on in new frontiers of what we can get machines to actually learn and accomplish. There's a bunch of interesting applied work in okay, now that these techniques work, how can we apply them to lots of different areas? Mm-hmm. And then there's interesting computer systems work, and how do we actually scale up the amount of computation that we can apply to these kinds of problems? How do we actually build you know, the right kinds of underlying hardware platforms right. to really make it so that, you know, uh, what we've observed so far is with neural nets and other kinds of machine learning approaches, the more data you have and the more computation you can throw at the problem, the better things work. Right, right. And so doing more of that by being able to th- throw even more computation problems is, is something I'm pretty excited about. I think there's going to be really amazing things coming out of that. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I read recently that you said you're really excited about applications in, in healthcare and also robotics. Um, yep. Tell me more about, about what you're working on there. Sure. So uh, the healthcare work, I think, is an area where machine learning can really uh, sort of complement the kinds of things that uh, existing healthcare professionals do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some efforts in... Uh, problems in medical imaging, because mm-hmm. essentially the work over the past five years has shown that computer vision really, really works well now if you can collect uh, a large labeled data set and apply you know, large convolutional neural nets to it. Um, and uh, medical imaging is no different than other kinds of computer vision problems. And so we think there's a real opportunity there to um, basically get automated systems that can help with me- various medical imaging diagnoses. Very cool. So, yeah. Wow. So when um, when do you think that that there will be an actually accessible application for that kind of a thing? Is that something that is in the near future or is this something that we feel like is, is decades away? Oh, it's not decades. Uh, I think the obstacles there are actually more regulatory mm. and privacy sensitive issues than actual technical things. If you had a labeled data set of, you know, uh, the problem we're furthest along is uh, diagnosing diabetic retinopathy mm. from retinal images. Very cool. Uh, and we have some early, very encouraging results that uh, that works very well. Uh, Sundar, our CEO, talked about this at Google I.O. in an abstract way, but it essentially works quite well. Um, and we feel like other medical imaging problems are you know, similar enough in structure and, and complexity that uh, they will also yield to... Um, the application of machine learning. Thanks. Um, Excellent. So you recently started the, um, I believe it's the the Google Brain Residency Program mm-hmm. to bring in people and basically start training them in-house who are from other backgrounds. Tell me about how that's going and, and what sort of people you're getting from, from various backgrounds who are interested in machine learning. Sure. So we started this program uh, basically to train people to into how to do machine learning research. And... Um, one of the things about uh, the field is there's a lot of people pouring in and there's a lot of interest in doing this. Um, and there aren't that many academic institutions that have strong uh, n- uh, neural net. Uh, there's like a handful of places in the world that you can study this. Um, and we felt like, uh, you know, we bring in a lot of interns in the past for kind of uh, summer internships. 
And the residency program is kind of a, a one-year program where we bring people in from, we weren't exactly sure what kind of backgrounds for the people who would apply would, ha- would have, uh, but we ended up getting a lot of applicants. So we had 2,400 applicants. Wow. And we took 27 residents for the first year's class. And the really nice thing is I, I think they have a really wide variety of backgrounds, the mm-hmm. ones that we accepted. So they have, you know, about 40% have a bachelor's degree, 35% or something have a, a master's degree, and the rest have a PhD or, or have done a postdoc mm. in some field. About half also have some industry experience, and half are coming direct from their educational experience. Uh, and there's a wide mix of different fields represented. So we have you know about a third computer scientists, a third people with a math or statistics background, and the third have a long tail of various other science-related fields. We have physicists and biologists and... People with backgrounds in medicine. Very cool. And uh, there's a, a computational finance person. Oh, nice. So, <laughs> so it's it's a great mix. And I think at any time in the past that I've worked on projects where you bring together people with different backgrounds and experiences and different kinds of expertise, you often are able to do more than the sum of the parts because collectively you can attack problems that none of you would be equipped to solve individually. Yeah. So I think that the residency program is, is really indicative of this trend in machine learning where um, you're, you're doing this sort of like in-house training in industry that you're starting your own basically research groups, which are really resemble the same dynamic as you would have at a university lab. How do you think that that's changing both industry and academia as we see much more interest in these areas? Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting. There's a lot of the the machine learning research community as a whole is is moving extremely fast. Like it's, I, I come from a mostly computer systems background and have kind of migrated to machine learning in the past four or five years. And the situation right now is everyone posts work on archive like immediately as soon as they finish it so that they don't get scooped. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. And From every research lab in the world like scans the list of 100 archive papers being posted this week and like quickly reads all the ones that seem <laughs> interesting and then they develop extensions and refinements of the, those ideas mixed with their own ideas and then publish those on archive. Right. And so this iteration time is more like a week or two rather than in a more traditional, slower moving set of uh you know, uh, subfields where you would often submit to a conference and nine months later your paper would get accepted and you might think about putting it up on the web like a little right. bit before the actual right. conference. But yeah. the iteration time there is more like months. nine months or a yeah. year. Yeah. And here it's like a week or two. <laughs> right. And it's pretty phenomenal. And there's, I think, you know, so many ways that machine learning can impact lots of different fields of computer science, but also lots of other field disciplines, lots of other sciences, lots of other things like healthcare, Mm -hmm. uh, robotics, and that kind of thing, um, that there's tremendous interest in the field as a whole Mm -hmm. and how it can impact, you know, both the basic uh, AI research, but also, you know, how can it be used in robotics? How can it be used in healthcare? Right. Uh, Which is cool. Bringing together all these people with different backgrounds. And so that's sort of why we're running the residency program. We're actually running it again for next year. So applications oh, are open now. Great. And uh, I think they're due in early January. Um, and uh, we're hoping to have another great class of residents. And, uh, Very cool. Yeah, a widely diverse set of people with interesting ideas. Nice. So um, what are you, – you have an amazing group at Google Brain, George Dahl, all those, all those fantastic people. Um, 
what are uh, what are some of the questions that you're really excited to be looking at right now? So I think the work in robotics is really exciting. We have a pretty active research set of research efforts in there uh, on how can we use machine learning to do much more end-to-end control of robotics. Mm-hmm. So something that we, where you take a neural net with a camera input and you directly produce torque motor controls for the output of a robotic arm or something without any sort of hand-coded algorithmic control system. It's just learning from hand-eye coordination how to like do stuff with its arm. Wow. Um, so we have a, a robotic lab that we've set up. We discovered 20 unused arms, robotic arms <laughs> in a closet from a company that Google had acquired that was going to be a sold product but ended up being, you know, Changing the product plan. What a and, closet to walk into. <clears throat> right. And so one of the one of our robotics researchers said, hey, this is fantastic. these arms. So we now have a um, an arm farm. I liked the arm pit, but, <laughs> but we decided That's on the good. arm farm as mm-hmm. the name. Um, and so there's a, a lab where we can explore sort of parallel collection of data across many robots that are mostly the same, but, you know, subtly different where mm-hmm. they have you know, the camera in a slightly different position. We didn't exactly calibrate where their camera is above their shoulder. They only have one arm, so I don't know if it's still called a shoulder, but... <laughs> joint and <laughs> joint. joint. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so that's been a really good thing for doing experiments on real, real robots. And we also have a pretty active work on simulation environments for robots. Very because cool. even if you have 20 robots, it's very hard to actually get a lot of experience on that. Uh, so that's been pretty exciting. Um and then we have, you know, a wide variety of other kinds of things going on in uh, language understanding and mm-hmm. computer vision problems. Uh, uh, we have a pretty active effort around really improving machine translation. Yeah, um, the um, <coughs> the Google Neural Machine Translator. Yes, it's very exciting. Yeah. We just released uh, a, a pretty comprehensive archive paper, <laughs> uh, plus the first production language pair mm. of uh, Chinese to English. And now English to Chinese is also launched, Very and we'll cool. be rolling out a bunch more language pairs over the next uh, few few weeks and months. Awesome! Very exciting, and the the quality jump there is really dramatic from the old phrase based statistical machine translation mm-hmm. system to the system that uses just a neural net end to end trained. It wow. just takes in you know words in one language, hits a funny end of end of English token or something, <laughs> right. and then it's trained to just spit out French. <laughs> So is the next step there to just sort of run through all of the languages spoken by humans or, or work more on uh, on um, quality improvement or, or just? Yeah, the, there are a bunch of different focuses. So Google Translate, the product, supports uh, 10,000 different language pairs, I think, wow. 100 languages to 100 other languages. <laughs> um, so getting, you know, the system deployed for all of those is the eventual goal. Mm-hmm. Um but we're also interested in what can we do to improve the quality of that. And we have a mm-hmm. lot of ideas around this that we think will dramatically improve the quality, even over and above the, the pretty big jumps that we've gotten so far. Hmm. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. Awesome. And that's been a really good collaboration with our team, a few, few researchers on our team, and our group production translation uh, team. Very cool. There was a really interesting paper out of your group recently, um, which was about, uh, I believe the title was Equal Opportunity in Supervised Learning, which had to do with, um, I believe, uh, basically um, inherent discrimination. Can you talk a little bit about the paper? Yeah. So this is work by Moritz Hart and others in our group uh, on essentially trying to make sure that, um, you know, often if you subject machine learning systems to a bunch of data, 
they will pick up interesting patterns in that data, mm-hmm. some of which are incredibly desirable and useful, but some of which just reflect the world that is rather than the world we would like it to be. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so this uh, work by Moritz is um, essentially trying to say, okay, let's have a machine learning system trained in some way that is going to have different different uh, behaviors that it, it exhibits. And is there a way to correct for behaviors at the output of that, that system so that regardless of how we train that machine learning system, how can we make sure that it has fairness properties so that, for example, um, regardless of uh, your race, you get an equal chance to mm-hmm. be presented with an opportunity to have a loan, mm-hmm. uh, even if the machine learning system itself might have picked up on other not you know things that are correlated with race right. that uh, might say, well, you should or shouldn't get a loan. Right. And so I think this is a really important issue is how can you make sure that the machine learning systems that we train and build have the properties that we want them to have in terms of fairness and not having bias and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Building in, building in the ethics that we would like, that we would like to, right. to see. That's and the approach sure. that I think Moritz has, has taken here is really nice because it's essentially a way you can take any machine learned system and then add this extra corrective oh, as- algorithmic aspect to it at the end rather than being something that is very tied to a particular kind of machine learning method. Right, right. So that's that's really interesting. What do you think are some of the other ethical questions that we that the um, the research community and the industry community can be thinking about now that can actually be built into the systems that are being created? Right. So we have another uh, bit of work that was published a few months ago called uh, in collaboration with actually several other institutions, with Berkeley and Stanford and some people at OpenAI. Hmm on uh, concrete problems in AI safety. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not quite an ethical thing, but it's more of a safety mm-hmm. issue. But mm-hmm. uh, we feel like, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about scariness of, of you know, computers taking over and doing Skynet, things like that. Yeah, all right. the, yep, yep. And, you know, that, that kind of discussion, first, I think it's, you know, way too early to be worried about those kinds of very far, far off distant uh, fears that some people might have. I don't necessarily believe in them. But I think there are some real concrete issues in the near term that we can actually do research on and work on in terms of improving, you know, or figuring out ways to bound the behavior of learned systems Mm -hmm. so that we know that even though it's trained on data and maybe it gets exposed to data that's not necessarily from the same distribution as the data it was trained on, how can we ensure that it behaves in a safe or reasonable manner? Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of like five or six similar kinds of problems that the authors of that paper outlined mm-hmm. that I, we think are sort of very tangible research directions that we actually should explore workable. and are actually, you know, actionable today are going to be real problems now-ish or soon-ish. You know, if you have robots operating in real-world environments near humans, some of these problems are going to come up where you want them to operate in a safe manner and not not injure people, not right. bump into them, right. yeah. not knock over toddlers because right. yeah. they're shorter and yes. weren't trained on toddler size data or whatever. Um, Still a human, just smaller. <clears throat> right, right. Uh, and so making sure that those those issues are, are thought about and addressed in a, in a responsible manner is something I think we as a community, machine learning community, should be thinking about mm-hmm. and um, working on. One of the one of the big um, in 
issues internal to the community that I've that I've seen you speak about is um, diversity in the computer science, the just you know the people who are doing the computer science and who are doing the research. Um, you know, given the the gender ratio in in the field and also the the ethnicity skew, what do you think that we can do to bring more people into computer science and have a more diverse range of people answering or thinking about these questions? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that I care extremely deeply about. Um, partly from my experience growing up, living lots of different places in Uganda and Somalia and, and uh, all over the U.S., um, just seeing people with lots of different backgrounds. And uh, I feel like you want computer science to reflect the diversity of the population of the world, not the diversity of people who have the educational opportunities that uh, a very small number of people have in the world. Right. And it's pretty important to make sure that we represent the diversity of the world uh, in our field. And so encouraging, you know, young women to study computer science to, you know, not get turned off when their middle school boy classmates say, oh, you shouldn't do math, right? They need to, um, we need to figure out ways to be much more inclusive. And I think it's a problem throughout, you know, many different stages of education that we need to address in lots of different ways. And similarly for, um, you know, racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity, um, some people don't have the opportunity to have a computer at home in high school and like tinker with it and play with it. And they're going to start at a disadvantage if they even if they wanted to study computer science and they may not know that that's a thing that they should study. So figuring out ways to get people exposed to this, I think, is a really important issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, your group had a lot to do with uh, with TensorFlow, which has totally, I mean, uh, changed everything. I feel like that's a big, broad <laughs> statement, but like actually one that can wow. be supported. Um, so what's what's next for TensorFlow? Are you changed? Are, what are your plans for it in the future? Yeah. So uh, TensorFlow is the an open source. Uh, well, it's a system we developed internally for our own research purposes and and production machine learning purposes. And from the start, we said, okay, this is something we're actually going to open source. So it took us you know, nine months to get to a point where we had an initial version that we were happy open sourcing. And it's been almost a year. So the, mm -hmm. the one-year anniversary will be, of open sourcing will be in early November. <laughs> yes, we're very excited. We're planning a party with the cake and candles <laughs> or something. Um, and uh, so I think you know, we open sourced it for several reasons. One is um, we felt like if we were able to put out implementations of the stuff that we were doing in, in conjunction with our papers, people mm -hmm. would be able to reproduce our results mm -hmm. more readily. Like often you're reading a paper and it's, you know, there's a lot of details left out when writing a technical paper. And so you read a sentence and it says like, we used a low learning rate and you're like, uh, <laughs> well, we did what, it. what learning rate <laughs> right, exactly, yeah, right. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I feel like having a reproducible artifact will really accelerate the, the science and transfer of knowledge that happens even more than just publishing lots of papers on archive, which is mm -hmm. a fantastic mm -hmm. thing as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing it, that we we wanted internally and, and felt like the community could benefit from is being able to go from a research idea to a production implementation of that thing in the same system. Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't need to rewrite it in some other thing just because you want to run like lots of load on it. Right. Uh, you can actually actually do that relatively easily. And we also wanted it to be portable so that you could take something you've trained on a big data center or on your desktop machine with GPUs mm -hmm. and run the same model on an app on your cell phone so that your mobile app can just have a neural net in it, of yeah, course, because right. yeah, everything course. should. Totally. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, 
So that's sort of where we are today, mm -hmm. and we have a distributed implementation of TensorFlow that was not in the initial open source release, but got released a couple, few months later. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're going to be open sourcing a compiler uh, associated with the the system, so that Fantastic. we can take a TensorFlow graph and identify like a subgraph of twenty nodes that do some computation and generate optimized code for that set of twenty. 20 nodes rather than sort of interpreting, you know, okay, do a matrix multiply, now do this vector operation out of this thing. We think that'll be a big, big improvement in performance and, and so on. Uh, we're just sort of uh, working out the final details of how to get that code into the open source release. That'll be exciting. Um, on the um, community side, we're always trying to put out more and more useful models that people have found to be effective at different kinds of problems and try, we strive to document them well. Like mm -hmm. I think the, one of the reasons TensorFlow has done well is that the set of tutorials we put together initially actually were pretty good at both demonstrating and describing different machine learning ideas, but also describing the TensorFlow way that you would implement and, and sort of cause those ideas to, to come into reality. And, and people could walk through them and say, oh, I see how to, build a language translation model. Right, and right. Like, I can actually use this. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. so that's been pretty good. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I think <laughs> that the issue of reproducibility is is a huge one, especially as more and more people become interested in machine learning and we have the, the fire hose that is archive, um, which keeps things moving very quickly. What else do you think that the community, the research and industry community needs to do to um, sort of move reproducibility forward in a way that's sustainable and, and works fast enough to keep up with the pace of things? these days yeah I mean I think one thing is just if people uh, you know if we have a wider set of standardized data sets that people do their do their you know um, tasks on mm -hmm. um, and if people publish working implementations of something that reproduces their results um, you know ideally you'd push a button and like <laughs> hours or days later right. something would come out that would be like just like table three in their paper yeah hopefully <laughs> right? right yes now typically it's not quite that that uh, seamless but but uh, the more we can strive for that as a community the better it'll be mm -hmm. well that's it for this episode of Talking Machines I'm Catherine Gorman and I'm Neil Lawrence tune in next episode <laughs>